0: lately, so I haven't been able to record much, and I've been working a little bit more on researching, so there's that. So the topic I'm going to start with today is the idea that, um, well, essentially, there's this correlation that people with schizophrenia use nicotine 70-90% uh, to 90% of them, according to some studies. And I think that it seems abnormally high, even if the case were um, self-medicating. That is the mainstream hypothesis at the moment, is that they are self-medicating to treat cognitive symptoms of schizophrenia, but I think it could be a little bit different than that. Although I do think that there is some solid evidence that it can nicotine can in fact treat uh, cognitive symptoms in schizophrenia. I'm not sure for how long that would occur, and more. Interestingly, this is where I'm coming from. I believe that the longer that you take nicotine, the more problems it might cause for schizophrenia. And so, the main uh, mechanism of interest here is that um, as you consume nicotine, one of the mechanisms for nicotine addiction is that a neurotransmitter known as dynorphin is increased over time Uh, so especially during the withdrawal effects of nicotine we would expect dynorphin to be sort of peaking and dynorphin if you don't know is the neurotransmitter involved in learning aversion Um, so when you learn to dislike things, it is um, the neurotransmitter that has uh, effect there. So basically what happens is it has anti-dopamine effects. It also blocks the NMDA receptor. And I believe that by blocking that receptor, it prevents you from learning to habituate any kind of behaviors that uh, release dynorphin. So if you touch something painful, dynorphin can release to make sure that you don't learn to accidentally keep touching the painful stimuli, right? That wouldn't be good. So on the other hand, there are... So dynorphin is an Opioid. I should clarify that. It binds to the kappa receptors. And there are three main types of opioid receptors that are talked about. There are kappa receptors. And then the other two, mu and delta, are considered to have a positive and reinforcing effect of behaviors that um, coexist with it. So, for example, say you consume food and it's really good. There will be an opioid effect from uh, those two receptors and you will learn to habituate that so that you can get the reward again. It trains you to... So so this whole system of dynorphin and the other opioids, which are enkephalin and endorphins, those two um, bind to mu and delta. And together, these essentially play the fundamental role of learning based on good and bad so um, the effects of the positive opioids would promote NMDA binding which would allow easier learning because NMDA receptors are heavily implicated in learning and memory and stuff like that so essentially this dynorphin molecule has been implicated in things like trauma um, and, as I've already said, aversions. And if you really look at trauma, uh, it isn't much more than an extreme form of aversion. And on the other hand, addiction is an extreme form of pleasure uh, learning. So, in that sense, reinforcement of some pleasurable Experience some reward, whereas dynorphin is kind of like punishment in a sense. So, the interesting thing here is that many models of addiction uh, look at this dynorphin molecule, and it is thought that essentially every time you try to stop a drug, you are punished by this dynorphin molecule, and when you take the drug, it kind of suppresses that effect by giving you a rewarding experience, and it is known that binding to, let's say, mu opioid produces euphoria, and it also has the opposite effect of binding to kappa receptors. So, um, one of them promotes. So, mu opioid promotes dopamine release, whereas uh, CAP receptors inhibit it. And that's where things can get pretty interesting as well, because we know that one of the receptors that is involved in one of the earlier theories of schizophrenia is the D2 receptors involved in the dopamine hypothesis of schizophrenia and so what what do we know about d2 receptors we know that there are two forms of them there's a long and a short form and the short form is what we're going to look at here the short form inhibits dopamine release and it's known that dynorphin when it binds to kappa receptors potentiates the effects of the D2 receptors, and I'm not sure if it's specific to long or short forms, but presumably this is the mechanism by which dynorphin is anti-dopaminergic. By essentially uh, potentiating the D2 short form of receptor and preventing dopamine release, And that's pretty interesting. So in that sense, dynorphin is able to sort of act as a missing link between this uh, dopamine hypothesis and also um, the glutamate hypothesis, which that hypothesis states that there is a decreased activity at NMDA receptors And this is particularly interesting when you consider things like trauma, where a person who undergoes trauma might be sort of um, trapped, where their behaviors are severely limited because of their fears. So for example, let's say someone is in an abusive relationship we might see that after that experience, they can no longer uh, open up and be intimate in future relationships because they are afraid of what might occur if they do that. They are traumatized. And when when these people are traumatized... Okay, so there's, there's an interesting correlation where one of the receptors involved in... Um, uh, in schizophrenia, there's a D4 dopamine receptor, which if you've followed my research in the past, my, um, articles that I've written, I stated that I think that the D4 receptor essentially enhances learning, especially of new things. And I think that includes both pleasure and, um, negative experiences so what's interesting about this receptor is that genes involved in causing more of these receptors to exist in your brain have been linked to openness to experience and schizophrenia but specifically with schizophrenia we find that they don't have openness to experience but people with schizotypal traits do in fact have a higher openness at least more than schizophrenics and i think what's happening here so so some theories state that the openness allows people to better cope with trauma there's another fact there because those who are low in openness tend to have more severe consequences of trauma But I think what might be a huge factor here is that the people who are less open, it may be because they are um, trained to not be open anymore. I think when we are clean and fresh and pure as a child, I think we have a lot of openness. But I think eventually we kind of get sculpted by... Both positive and negative experiences, but I think especially it's the negative experiences that would decrease openness. And going back to that example with the relationship, we see a person that is no longer opening up to people. And I think that's really what's going on here, is that people who are more severely traumatized are going to be less open and that people with schizophrenia aren't much different than a lot of the people with these openness genes except they've been hurt and now they've decided not to be open anymore and that even a lot of their symptoms come from this that they may like stay inside all day in their house and be afraid of society or various problems and so now What's kind of interesting here is that we know that psychedelics can permanently or at least it seems to be a permanent increase in openness to experience after a single experience with these drugs. Like, There's been a study with psilocybin where they found that even up to a year after uh, the dose, they maintained an increased openness to experience. And What I think is going on there is that these drugs essentially reverse all of your conditioning, both um, positive and negative. So in that sense, I think that's why they have been used to treat addiction and PTSD. And researchers use this as part of the explanation that Having an increased openness to experience improves the outcome of PTSD. But I think it's a little bit different than that. I don't think... Because that makes it sound a little bit arbitrary, right? That sounds like somehow, mysteriously, openness makes people uh, more able to overcome the experience. But I think that you're kind of... What's really going on is you're erasing the conditioning that existed there and with that you are now free and more open because it was the trauma that was suppressing your openness to experience and I think in this sense here is my radical claim that psychedelics may actually be able to treat cases of schizophrenia but I think it gets really complicated because I think so I should also state that I think Um, PTSD and schizophrenia aren't really that different. I think that there are some differences in how these things are manifesting, but I think at the core, I think they are both essentially a dynorphin um, excess problem. I think they are both trauma. And I think in the case of schizophrenia, the person may have genes that make them more susceptible to trauma. For example, that D4 receptor gene that I mentioned before, um, I think having more D4 receptors makes people more curious and more exploratory. But I think there's a cost in that, that by being more exploratory, we will end up seeing people come across problems more frequently. and So you can look at this as a kind of um, duality between... uh, Let me think how to say it. So a duality between tradition and a kind of liberalism, a kind of uh, um, a fetish for newness. So when we see traditionalism people will maintain cultural habits and just kind of follow what has been going on for a long period of time. And we could at least know that if it was occurring for a long period of time, these behavioral habits, that we shouldn't expect them to suddenly be a problem. At least we are alive, right? But then on the other hand, by taking risks of trying something new, you can find new habits that are better than the old ones. But there is also a risk of failure. So we call this trial and error. That might um, be apparent here. So... Um, the problem with that, though, is that if you are a person who is curious to try new things and undergo this trial and error, you are undoubtedly going to come across error more frequently than someone who tries to stick to what they are told and what they are um, what is considered traditional um, so so what begins to happen here, I believe, is that you can be punished for errors. That is one source of trauma. You can be labeled as a person who is an error maker, which is another problem. Your identity becomes a failure essentially. And I think this would especially be the case if you are surrounded by other people who are more traditional minded, I think, For example, you could be surrounded by a bunch of people who are um, kind of evangelical religious types, and they may not understand science, for example, and if you were to try to explain it to them, they might... um, uh, like through your exploration, that is your only way to leave this evangelical culture. And everyone who isn't exploratory will still be in it. And those people who are in it will not necessarily trust outsiders who claim they've found something different. They would be distrustable, distrusting of those novelties. And so I think there's this... Kind of isolation that you can obtain from being more exploratory. That the more you are willing to travel outside of cultural norms and um, repetitious memes of society, the more likely you will find yourself um, turned against those people. And I think that we should really empathize on both sides here, but I think it is more common that we've already empathized with the majority of people and now we need to kind of rethink society and begin to empathize with these people who are being rejected. I think there is a necessity to be cautious with trying new things, but I think a lot of people end up in a kind of perpetual suffering because of it they can be traumatized for isolation, rejection um, being identified as a failure um, being punished for the failings and etc. So I think it becomes increasingly harder for the traditional types or the majority of people who don't Explore to understand explorers because, for example, the curious type might find something that's um, actually valid and novel, but they will be rejected simply because their identity is the person who always comes up with bad ideas or something. So when we see the traditional types, everything they do will fall under a list of tech, like, let me think, I don't know if I would consider them all safe, but for the most part, we know that all those behaviors don't seem to lead to death of a society. We could say that at least. And so there's a lot more trust and reputation built up over time with these kind of traditional mentalities. They have went through trial and error and successfully survived in our culture, whereas new ideas, the more that you keep coming up with them and the more errors you make, your reputation as a person coming out to set new standards will be decreased. And so there's that. And moving back, I'm not sure if I went into this uh, connection with the glutamate hypothesis fully but so with this glutamate hypothesis, dynorphin is capable of shutting down NMDA receptors, and it makes sense that there would be a lot of uh, shut down NMDA activity. The more traumatized you were, and it would also make sense that your openness would be decreased, as we do see in schizophrenics as well. And um, there are some links to creativity with people with schizophrenia, um, especially people who are considered schizotypal. And some studies have shown that this link is actually to openness to experience rather than necessarily schizophrenic traits. And I find that interesting because it makes total sense. I think creativity is really about exploring because the idea of this Creating It's really to come up with something that isn't already traditional. It's to go outside of the box of normal society. And that's exactly what I'm describing here with exploratory behavior. And I really don't think there's a difference there too much in being creative and being exploratory. Being experimental or being... um, Which is in opposition to traditional. And that's kind of interesting there because conservative society often rejects science a lot of the time. The most conservative societies at least will reject science and that is science is the most experimental in a sense. They are literally performing experiments. And so... Okay, so... Now, what are the effects of blocking the NMDA receptor? Drugs that do this are drugs like PCP, ketamine, um, and a whole host of other drugs. Even cannabis is able to shut down the NMDA receptors quite quickly. And all of these produce dissociative effects. They can numb your senses, they can block out your memory, they can alter the way you perceive reality, and all the drugs that block this NMDA receptors, um, they fall under what are called psychotomimetics, which just means that they mimic um, psychosis. And so I think that the more traumatized you are, the more dissociated you get because of the high dynorphin activity. You can dissociate from uh, the source of pain. So I think there are two ways this can go. I think that you can be... so, So we see for PTSD that exposure therapy is pretty effective. And what exposure therapy is, is that you're constantly exposed to this negative stimuli, essentially, until you get used to it, until you are numb to it. And I really think that this is a form of dissociation. I think what happens for the, for a lot of people who don't get exposed, they become hypersensitive, they they run away from the stimuli and their tolerance for it is very low. It's kind of like if you were to drink caffeine or something every day. Um, the more that you take it, you'll become tolerant of it and kind of numb to the effect. But if you were to avoid it all the time, you would actually have the strongest effect because you don't have a tolerance to it. And it's the same with these aversive stimuli. And I think that a lot of the coping mechanisms go either of those two ways, avoidance or uh, numbness and dissociation. And I really think that society normalizes a lot of these kind of aversions. I think that, for example, if we see an animal being slaughtered brutally, this is A traumatic kind of experience. But most of us continue to eat meat despite that, and we avoid confronting the animal slaughter. But some of us can watch tons of these animal slaughter videos and we will no longer feel anything. And I think that's a dissociation. And I think that people who are consuming meat, they will. I mean there is an obvious connection that you're eating the flesh of an animal that's kind of obvious right I mean that's what meat is so I think that we actually dissociate from realizing that on some level I don't think we dissociate from cognitively like acknowledging it like I obviously we can realize that we're eating an animal but I think the impact the emotional effects is numbed out and our kind of ability to emotionally rec- recognize what is occurring to the animal at a distance is kind of shut out as well. And we avoid watching those videos despite it being a part of our daily life. It's kind of a strange phenomenon that something that occurring so ubiquitously is something that we're so not ubiquitously exposed to. And I think that is a culturally normalized um, kind of psychotic behavior. I think for a lot of people who are actually diagnosed as schizophrenic, though, what happens is they could be in an abusive household situation where they end up dissociating in a way that is different normal society. It could be a form of trauma that other people are not exposed to. And that means that people could actually recognize these strange behaviors. For people to recognize that eating meat can be an intense uh, reality uh, is a little bit harder because everyone is collectively denying this reality. But when we look at um someone that might not trust people in general let's say let's say there's a schizophrenic who has severe agoraphobia and they don't um they can't express or let's say they don't express any emotions to people because every time they expressed emotions in their household people reacted quite negatively maybe they were abused if they reacted to things Or something like this and then the schizophrenic person might not even be aware that they're acting different at a certain point in the same way that people might not realize that eating animals is a really intense thing to do Um, so I think that people can more easily recognize these kind of differential traumas in these people and this is something i went into in the last episode where if you look at somebody with um, let's say there's a homosexual christian um, and they only have friends and family who are part of the christian culture and let's say this christian culture that they're immersed in is very against homosexuality, I think these are the kinds of situations where someone could begin to hear voices. And I think that person who is homosexual might have homosexual thoughts and urges, but they will Um, not want to associate with that because to associate with that would be also to associate with the fact that everyone hates them or rejects them within their own culture it could mean that they will no longer have any friends or family to have social support a lot of Christians used to be kicked out of their homes if they were um, coming out of the closet for example so In this case, someone might end up rejecting these internal urges and thoughts about being homosexual. So eventually they may decide that it's not really their thoughts. Like they're not trying to think these thoughts, but somehow unwillingly these thoughts are coming onto them. And this, I think will eventually manifest is them hearing a voice within their head that is not their own and maybe depending on how intensely Christian they are they might um, believe it is a demon or that they are possessed or something like that and let's say that person oh if we could just end that there that probably makes enough sense now now going back to nicotine, we kind of strayed pretty far from that. So so nicotine upregulates dynorphin and I think that so so this is actually common with a lot of drugs and It is known that cocaine and meth can bring upon psychotic episodes and that it takes time to build up. Presumably that is because uh, dynorphin upregulates. And I imagine that dynorphin, while it's inhibiting dopamine activity, that would also upregulate dopamine and we might find high levels of dopamine occurring but at the same time a kind of hypofrontality so so the frontal lobe is where all the dopamine is primarily affecting cognition and behavior right so with that all this inhibition might cause a hypofrontality and cognitive problems like focus executive function problems that we see in schizophrenia and um And so, so I think that there's something really similar to addiction and schizophrenia. I think that, or at least I would say that the withdrawals of a lot of drugs is actually uh, pretty similar to schizophrenia and that probably a lot of people cope with their traumas by seeking out these drugs and then eventually worsening the problem. It's much like someone who would take alcohol, for example, to treat anxiety problems. People might find an initial comfort in drinking, but eventually they will start having panic attacks. It can escalate until they're having seizures even. And so I think what happens a lot of the time is that actually nicotine might sensitize you to negative experiences and that with enough time this hypersensitivity of aversion because of the upregulation of the dynorphin system will manifest as a buildup of traumas and you may eventually find yourself dissociating from a lot of things, more so than a regular person would, because now you're having this increased sensitivity to negative experiences. And I think especially with things like nicotine and cocaine, they, they are problematic because they are so short-lasting, and I think that that means that there's even a more intense and short peak experience of these drugs. So, like, for example, a lot of people will use nicotine 12 times a day or something like that. And um, I think that trying to, the more that you would try to maintain effects at the peak of the experience, that means that you're actually, every time you stop, you're actually having a, a longer and more intense uh, negative effect afterwards. If if you were only dosing twice a day, your most average effect might be somewhere in the middle. But if you're constantly at the peak, that lasts, let's say, only five to twenty minutes or something like that. Um, that means all the rest of the time you're going to experience negative effects. So let's say that someone has a more stressful day, they smoke, um, 12 cigarettes in a four hour time period because of that. Um, but then later, if they go back to their normal habits, they might start having more psychotic effects building up because of the tolerance that they've created and So there's that. Um, I'm kind of running out of ideas of where to go with this stream of thought. I'm going to build a more um, organized dynorphin theory for psychosis because um, currently I only have the nicotine disorder post, And you should go check that out if you haven't. It has sources on a lot of these claims. So, um, if you read my entire website, um, there's um, citations for all these claims that I'm making. Um, But I need to build a more um, direct dynorphin theory for psychosis soon. Um, It kind of fits together the idea that trauma can bring up a genetic predisposition it makes sense of the genetic predisposition in terms of a uh, accelerated learning model of the d4 receptor and also i didn't mention it too much here but there's a um, decreased GABA um, sensitivity for those who have schizophrenia oftentimes and the D four receptor and also the GABA receptors—they they actually work together in kind of a uh, the two genes or there's multiple genes really, but the two types of genes, the D four type genes and the GABA genes, they both can have a similar effect um, theoretically because the effect of the D four receptor part of it is to shut down GABA receptors and then they, there are these genes linked to a decreased effectiveness of GABA receptors or even decreased number of GABA receptors that can kind of give the same effect. Maybe not in the same circumstances, of course, which I get into in the Xenotypey article if you haven't read it. But yeah, so I think it binds the dynorphin trauma um Accelerated learning and how trauma really is a form of learning. Uh, It shows why addiction is related to schizophrenia. Um, Addiction is also related to PTSD oftentimes. It it explains why there are um, drugs that um, can block... Well, I'm not going to go into that because I forgot to talk a little bit about tachykinins. But there's this, um, uh, there's these neurotransmitters called tachykinins, and then it connects the D two theory, the dopamine theory of schizophrenia, and also the glutamate theory. So it kind of really binds together a lot of the theories that. Kind of fight with each other there are these theories that there's a brain disorder and then there are theories that trauma can cause this kind of madness and i think when we really look at it it's not as crazy as it seems i think it's more the case that it is a different kind of craziness than normal society is. And I think if we can kind of envision a utopia where people don't suffer at all, that normal society is equally as schizophrenic as how we see a schizophrenic person, it's just that um, it's different. So like, if someone gets abused by males versus someone gets... Um, hurt by a dog they may develop a phobia for those things and we might think that like, let's say not that many people are abused by dogs, that's rare let's say Um, so we might empathize with a more common relationship abuse but not the person abused by dogs and we might think that their strange aversion to dogs is just some weird chemical um, problem Um, But the idea that there are chemical problems in the first place is so problematic. Um, You could say that running involves altered hormones and even altered dopamine activity because you need different dopamine activity to engage in different behaviors since dopamine is involved in behavioral uh, activity. So, So really you could say that running is a chemical imbalance or chemical disorder if we were going to say other things are chemical disorders as well. It's really more that these are the mechanisms for different moods and states of mind and emotional states, really. And that I think part of the problem is that we've had so many... Really privileged psychiatrist in the field who couldn't understand people's problems, and the people who suffered these problems weren't able to go through school yet because the horrible conditions of the psychiatry industry because of this dynamic. But then, the more and more that people become successful. As mildly schizophrenic or mildly traumatized people they can now help people um, a little bit more and then as we continue we're going to start seeing people who are actually schizophrenic psychiatrists who can now actually fix the core of the problems because they could actually understand on a subjective level what is going on and now I know I said I was going to wrap it up But maybe I should share a little bit of my story. I've actually had psychotic effects. Um, There's probably a load of reasons. It seems like the most common for me is that when I get excessively isolated, I begin to get hallucinatory effects. I get more paranoid, agitated. I get... um, spiteful of people, of society. I start thinking that no one cares about me. Um, I've thought that people were going to try to kill me before. Uh, And when I have thoughts like that, I know that they are technically delusional and I don't necessarily think so much that I'm going to get killed, but there is like a worry in the back of my head that it's possible. But I've also had crawling hallucinations for example which is common which those seem to mostly come about when i'm isolated and really like usually i get pissed off that i'm not having social interactions with enough people at that point i get really anhedonic and unmotivated um so I don't know. What I noticed though that's very fascinating is that immediately when I begin to socialize, I'm all giddy, I can laugh, and the crawling hallucinations stop immediately. And I mean, I could be sitting in my bed experiencing them, kind of like getting pissed off, like rolling back and forth getting really annoyed at these sensations and this dull, dull depressive feelings. And then someone calls me on the phone and then I'm completely not depressed. I don't feel the hallucinations and it's like I'm suddenly cured and that can last for maybe if, if I only talk to them for maybe an hour or two, it can last for maybe a day or something like that. And then I'll go back to feeling those sensations once I've been isolated for a long enough time. And that kind of gets into that stuff, the tachykinins that I mentioned earlier. Uh, some research has found that um, isolation behavior seems to be mediated by tachykinin upregulation. And so, um, they found that after 24 hours of isolation there are no effects of the behavior as much but after 2 weeks um there is definite noticeable behavioral changes aggressiveness um freezing behavior in the mice and what's kind of interesting that i think this freezing behavior is, is from so that so it's when they get stressed they freeze for a longer period of time And I think what happens is that normally when we get stressed out, we go to socialize and it's that we um, can kind of cope with those stressors and change our mood simply by interacting with other people. It's like an emotional contagion, probably on one level, that other people aren't suffering this problem that, that... is affecting us and now we can escape it. It is also a distraction obviously. It can direct our mind elsewhere whereas when you're alone I think that there's nothing to change your mode of thought. I think you will just ruminate and ruminate uh, deeper and deeper and there's nothing to really um, inspire any kind of change to those thought paths. So um, what's interesting is blocking tachykinins at the NK3 receptors um, has shown to have antipsychotic effects. It can end psychotic episodes. Um, so, in that sense, I mean, that's already seems to show evidence that um, socializing might help treat psychosis. Now, imagine with my crawling experience the crawling hallucinations what if i was traumatized by people to a point that i couldn't really open up past my kind of facade what if i could only have very shallow interactions with people and what if my past behaviors has ruined my reputation with all the people around me then Interacting with people may not even solve the problem. Maybe the emotional contagion will be other people judging me on every interaction i have like people acting distanced um people acting like they shame me things like this and i think that kind of goes back into the exploration behavior because if you're say a christian and you explore some new ideas and find out that now you're an atheist people are going to treat you different and your reputation is going to be changed and if you have no one that you can bond with at that point it's going to be very um, not happy, that's for sure. So, I think, um, okay, so now going back to social interaction, it's known that social reward and punishment involves the opioid system, which I think is kind of obvious. I honestly think all learning of good and bad is really based on these opioid neurotransmitters, but, um, So that part is kind of interesting because like a religion, like a church, they might be able to have a mass um, bonding experience that really has benefits. It's known that being in a religion um, and churches, this sense of community seems to have actual benefits to people's lives, despite whether it's true or not. There seems to be a benefit in having a kind of, like, I think they've mentioned in studies that it could be a sense of purpose, but I think it's a lot more to do with community and emotional contagion. And it's really interesting because I think this dynamic really promotes conservatism because liberalism is to challenge the old idea for which we are all bonding on if we are in a church. And to challenge that is really to essentially say, hey, I'm going to take away that benefit, that opioid effect from you for the sake of truth. And the truth might offer some better existence in reality, but you would have to really persuade a massive amount of people in order to create a massive amount of change. And so I think... um, People, people struggle to really be persuasive in one sense but on another level I think a lot of people don't want to be persuaded because um If someone is atheist and wants to turn one person, let's say you, into an atheist as well, that means they are going to recruit you away from your massive bonding experience. They're going to take you away from all those benefits that you got, all those perhaps sense of purpose, and now you're going to um, be in this lonely cult of atheists who are a minority culture. And... So, this kind of gets into that whole opium of the masses idea, which is really interesting. It kind of really is an opium of the masses, even on a biological level. Okay, so another thing we find is that opioid drugs seem to be the only addictive drugs that um, can have antipsychotic effects. And I think it makes sense because you could be blocking that dynorphins activities or having the opposite effect. You are pushing against it with these positive mu and delta receptor effects. And it kind of makes sense. And it's kind of interesting there because a lot of people who are withdrawing from opioids will get crawling hallucinations. Some seem to get psychotic so this may be the same case as any other drug that upregulates dynorphin activity really but perhaps when people are actively taking it it doesn't produce as much psychotic effects like maybe it's a more effective antipsychotic than let's say nicotine would be because maybe there's problems with the indirect Activity on opioid receptors, that it's not as um, sustainable somehow. I don't know. I don't even know if there's really a difference, to be honest. But another thing that's worth mentioning is that there seems to be two reactions that we can have to negative or traumatic experiences There is either avoidance of that negative thing or anything that reminds us of it or triggers a memory of that negative experience. Or there is also uh, dissociation. And we often teach um, exposure therapy as a method of dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder. And I think what occurs there is you essentially build up a tolerance and cause a dissociation from that negative experience. I think you kind of numb it out. You get used to it. It's as if you were to drink caffeine every day. And with that in mind... I think that what can happen if people are um, using psychedelics, um, I think that they, how I've already sort of explained, they kind of remove your um, tolerance towards everything that you've already built a tolerance for, so they make you sensitive and vulnerable again. And in that way, it can help people who have been traumatized and they've been removed from the causal um, stimuli. So if they're in an abusive relationship, if they're removed from that relationship, they will maybe be cured in a sense by being free and vulnerable again because they are stuck avoiding any kind of intimacy or vulnerability and I think that for those who have a psychotic reaction to these psychedelics it's actually because they're still in the presence of those causal stimuli so consider that your numbness if you are still exposed to this causal stimuli, it would make sense that you are kind of undergoing exposure therapy on some level by repetitiously having exposure, right? So it would undo that kind of effect. It would undo the numbness and dissociation that you've had and reconnect you with the kind of raw unconditioned experience so for those people they might have built up a series of problems in their life that they've turned numb to and i think these problems might even tend to occur in clusters that let's say you're in an abusive situation those people tend to isolate themselves and their isolating behavior might um, cause more social problems. People might never realize that they're acting that way because of the abusive situation, and this can lead to just a stack of problems, really. And for that person to experience the psychedelic effect, they would actually uh no longer have a tolerance for all of those problems that they've kind of uh undergone this kind of exposure to therapy people who have gotten used to being alone for example or gotten used to the abuse or gotten used to a lot of problems so the reason that they might not be psychotic before the experience before the psychedelic effect is because it was a long period of time that these problems slowly emerged one by one for the most part. And so there's no crisis because you had time to develop toughness. And all of a sudden now that toughness is removed and you will go into a crisis mode. The stress will be too much. And you will experience the psychotic effects of dynorphin, is what I think. So, to clarify, there are two different cases here. You can be a person who has had very negative and traumatic experiences and no longer be facing those problems yet you are still responding in your daily life as if you were. You are stuck in these PTSD behaviors that make your life worse because you're avoiding a lot of experiences and avoiding possibly people, intimacy, vulnerability. And then there is the other experience where someone is still in contact with the problem that is causing it. Causing their um, negative experiences, and for those people, it can probably be quite disastrous. And worse is that people, um, once that person becomes vulnerable to the negative experience, they will be labeled. Is crazy and rejected because of the symptoms that occur with that extreme negativity hallucinations for example distrust paranoia all these kind of things will um, have them shunned by uh, their social peers and that in itself will worsen the problem people will treat them differently that label of error maker will only be increasingly enhanced for this person because now they can't even perceive reality without making an error, and once people um, uh, stereotype the person as a person who has these sort of problems they will be trapped and i think that's why we must be really careful with how we treat people that we label as schizophrenic i do not think it is even a condition that is necessarily hard to fix i think it is hard to fix only because of things like poverty or um social fears and, like, xenophobia, essentially, and different things like this, I don't think it is inherently hard to fix. I think you could theoretically fix these problems within a week. But I think that, for example, if someone's in an abusive relationship, there is not much we can do. Like, if you got a restraining order, that can easily fix the problem. But we have this tendency not to interfere with people's lives. But I think we should re-question that because we might find that there are people we we are interfering by forcing medications or like uh, forcing them to be in a psych ward or even. Promoting these things as if these are better than a restraining order, for example, I think most of these people just need to reform their lives and that becomes increasingly difficult due to their circumstances and not necessarily because of their uh, mental um, status. I think the mental status is a factor, of course, and it is a major factor. But what I mean here is that the mental status is really a byproduct of the environment. And that is the level that we need to intervene. So that is all for today. If you found that interesting, be sure to check out my other content. Um, You can... Um, Find that at mad.science.blog And I'm about to play you one of the tracks that I'm about to release pretty soon. This one is pretty cool. It starts off like some kind of um, down-tempo type music and evolves into pure ambience. Hope you enjoy and have a nice day.